Hello, and welcome back to the Wheel Talk podcast. My name is Abby Mickey. We're here to talk about the Paris-Roubaix Femme of Egg Zwift race that happened over the weekend. I'm joined by Gracie Elvin, who commentated the race for SBS. So that's exciting. Hey, hey. <laughs> I'm still picking up bits of my brain that were blown everywhere last night. It was really hard to like not be screaming in the studio. I was just like, you can't see right now because this is a podcast, but my arms were just going everywhere because that was the only way I could express myself in that <laughs> finale. I was just like silently screaming. <laughs> I did at one point uh, jump onto the couch and was standing on the couch holding my head in my hands. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Lauren Rowney, hello. I was, yeah, good morning, everyone. I was yelling at the, at the screen um, there at the race in the velodrome and everyone else seemed a little more calm and uh, like, oh, that's the very enthusiastic women's cycling family. Uh, yeah, you were actually at the race on the ground. Did you get to see Kate? Yes, but y- you know, the great thing about being at the race is like you meet really interesting people and you have great chats about women's cycling, but then you're trying to keep an eye on the screen and it's it's like every so every few sentences you're like yelling something at the screen and then going back to the <laughs> conversation going, I'm really sorry. <laughs> I love that Kate inadvertently matched Allison on the podium. It just looked so awesome. I was, I was going to message her and be like, "Did you, did you know something that we didn't know? Because you wore pink." And, <laughs> and also joining us today, Matt Denise. Matt, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for for having me. It's so good to be here. I'm really excited to be part of it, and uh, we have a lot to talk about. You're the first, I think, maybe potentially the first male voice we've had on the podcast. So that's oh, <laughs> we trust you. It's pressure. <laughs> no a lot pressure. to live up to. <laughs> yeah so we have a ton to talk about we we got a bunch of questions from listeners and a lot of them actually are about the race unsurprisingly so i think that we're gonna save some of the questions for our conversation about the race although there was one question that i feel like we could maybe dive into a little bit nope i changed my mind we're gonna answer that after the race because after we talk about the race because i think that that is a better time so let's just dive right into the race we don't have tilda obviously and i am not going to try to do a race recap because so much happened (laughs) it was like there is no way that this could be summed up in a couple in 30 seconds of race recap i think the most crucial things to discuss the early break went really early 20 ish kilometers into the race and pretty quickly got a massive time uh time gap from the peloton they had about six minutes when they went into the first cobbled sector after that there was not a ton of activity from the peloton to get a chase going but as i suspected lada kopecky did try to bridge ish tried to attack and make her own race to get up to that breakaway. We had a solo rider from the breakaway go for a while, although it didn't impact the race too much. And then chaos. It was it was chaos. There was a massive crash that we'll definitely get into, and it was the breakaway that stayed away narrowly into the velodrome. Allison Jackson won in a sprint that was very chaotic after... Uh, Femke Marcus went down on the velodrome and tears were everywhere. Everyone cried. <laughs> TikTok dances were danced. <laughs> for, for, for lots of reasons, there were lots of people crying. The, oh, I don't yeah. think I've seen so many tears of people rolling at, into the end of a race. And like I was getting emotional because I could only imagine what was going through all the different riders that were coming in at different times um, during that race. And I think starting with the early break is a really good point to start out because it was discussed in the preview. Alison Jackson called it actually um, in her her pre-interview and found herself into that move. Um, so where do we start with that? It was a huge group. Yeah, so there was 18 riders in the break, 18 riders from 18 different teams and only five teams missed the break, only one major team missed the break and that was Gumbo Visma who ended up having a pretty horrendous day. I mean, for a second, it looked like things maybe would go their way, but it didn't. And that was, I think, one of the most interesting things about the 
the breakaway and the peloton behind them was that there was really no chase, but there was like too many teams that were like, nah, we've got a rider, so we don't need to chase. Like even SD Works had Femke Marcus up there. Trek Segafredo had Lisa Klein. So the two biggest teams in the race, they had no reason to chase. And, uh, and that meant that there was, I mean, it is not often that we see a women's peloton, a women's one day race that, and that has a break that big, get that much time. But in Perry Roubaix, like you gotta be thinking, what were they thinking going into the first cobbled sector with six minutes of a, of a gap? Like the race was over at that point. It was nuts. I mean, I guess this just goes to show that there's, this is such a new race on the women's calendar. That's so unpredictable. And the women haven't quite figured out how to race it because what was super interesting from the Peloton's perspective is that that we were getting race radio on the live coverage and SD works team car was telling them to just be calm, just like be relaxed. There was no urgency. Was, yeah. Thank you, was, Matt. <laughs> There's no urgency. Was it the case that they were, they were just backing Femke Marcus to be able to take the win if it came to that, or did they just think that they had more time than they did and they just left it a bit too late? I, th- I don't think that five to six minutes was actually a mistake. It was, so far to go they had all of those cobble sectors to go which was 29k and a bit of cobbles and like you know roubaix cobbles so that you don't see that often in women's cycling to get a group that size allowed that much time but i wasn't that worried to be honest i think the mistake was that they didn't leave much wiggle room so they should have let the that group had four to five minutes not maybe five to six minutes and like that's a small difference but that is that was what the main difference was at the end because they were going to catch them and then suddenly they weren't because there was a crash and not co- cohesiveness and like that that is Roubaix though like maybe another race like a Flanders that gap would have come down much more easily and it would have sorted itself out by the last 10 kilometers but because of Roubaix and the, the the luck factor, they just didn't maybe leave that wiggle room. So I don't think that was an overall mistake massively, but it was just like everything does kind of add up in this particular race. That's a great point, Gracie. And we saw at I think 50-something kilometres ago when Lotta Kopecky really put the hammer down and went for it, the, the time tumbled by like a minute and a half within I think 10 kilometres or something crazy. And then we had a series of unfortunate events from from then on. But I, I don't know how far you want to get into it. I re- rewatched the last 10 kilometers again this morning just to wrap my head around what happened there. But um, maybe we don't jump too far ahead did and you try and dissect it. Because my head, I, did. I still haven't wrapped my head around what we saw. I think we should talk <laughs> a little bit about um, about Kapeki's attack because... I, I, we all knew it was coming. Like she went into this race, the out and out favorite to win. And when she attacked, I was surprised to see that there were riders who followed her. Like I would have thought that she would have had the strength to attack and just kind of ride away solo as she's done multiple times already this season. But we had Lucinda Brand, Elise Langaborghini, um, Elise Shabby and Florty Mackay able to follow that move. So I thought that was super interesting. And obviously that came back together with a massive group from behind, which really I, I didn't expect to see. I was pretty shocked to see that actually. Maybe a cumulative fatigue. I'm not sure because the, the Peloton at, until that point hadn't been racing really hard because that gap was still at what, four minutes 50 or something. So in a normal situation, yeah, I guess top riders like that could follow a Kapeki attack. But when we've seen her attack in other races, they've been really hard races. And so it's understandable that when she's got that pop, some, yeah, most riders yeah. cannot follow her. So, but as, as we all know, too, like a, a peak can not last a whole mm. nother week, you know, like she has had such an awesome season already. She was so good at Flanders, head and shoulders, but like, a whole week can make that difference. And it, it, even though she was still going really good, she just wasn't like, she maybe just lacked that extra one or 2%. And that was what the difference was. Like she mm. still looked super strong compared to most of the other riders, but 
it was that she's had all this pressure, she's performed really well, and maybe she just was, you know, a little bit off her game on the in, in this race. Is it possible that she wasn't going 100% at that particular moment? She was more just trying to string it out and see who would come with her rather than giving it everything with still 50k to go? Yeah, I mean, it's possible that she really wanted Weebus to be there with her because Weebus was in the group that caught them, first group that caught them when it was, it kind of turned into like a 10 rider group and then eventually more riders caught on from the back. But maybe, maybe there was a call from the car that the team wanted the two of them at least together for the numbers. Because at that point, Trek would have had the numbers if you factor in the early break as well with three versus two. So... That's entirely possible. I do think SC Works was maybe just a little too confident and just kind of wasn't as aggressive as they needed to be because I think if they'd been like a little bit more urgent about making moves, then I think it would have been a very different race. But they, yeah, I don't think that they, just from listening to the race radio, I think they were a little too tranquilo. One more reason why that I thought of when I was commentating as well was like they're racing in the front and they're, they're thinking about that group ahead, but they're also starting to get information about what was happening behind and number that, that key thing that Voss was behind for quite a lot of that. And I think that was a motivating factor for some of those moves in that main group and some of the, the pushes of pace and the attacks as well because they Voss wasn't like, De- a definite favorite like she could have been in other years but like she's she was still a favorite and you do not want to give her any chances to come to the finish so I think that they were happy to also just try and make it really hard for her to get back yeah speaking of bad luck Jumbo Visma's day out um I was surprised at, at the end there when I was trying to pay like attention to the race I was confused as to how Voss was still there potentially going to be fighting for the win after just what happened to throughout that race for them. And um, she had a bike change, right? Mm, 75k to go. Yeah, she, going into the first cobbled sector, before the first cobbled sector, she had a puncture or something and had a bike change. It was coming back on, but obviously coming into that first cobbled sector, the race was blowing apart. And so she was having to wade through cars, riders that were being dropped. And so she eventually got back onto that group, but then they hit another cobbled sector and she was at the back. So then she had to be in that group. So she had just kind of a series of unfortunate events. I feel like the what's super interesting is that she didn't have any teammates drop back to help her with the bike change. I don't know if they thought because it was there was still so many kilometers to go that they that she would maybe be able to do it. But the team was obviously working for her because then when Yumbo Visma did eventually regroup in a larger Peloton, we they had they strung out they had everyone on the front to try to bring the group out front back with Voss sitting in the wheel. So I thought that was that was an interesting call from Yumbo Visma. I didn't quite understand why Voss was on her own at such a crucial moment because yeah 75k to go but still it's like the, that's when the cobbles start that's like when the chaos i hits. wonder if it's that same thing you mentioned before about the peloton women's peloton still working out how this race works you know it's still such a young race and those crunch moments where the cobbles are coming up you know knowing that you need to be around your leaders at that time even more than you would normally be yeah, maybe, maybe that's just a learning thing i don't know she almost got the race like she was she was almost still right there which a lot of that had to do with the crash so the crash that impacted the race more than like anything else that happened on the day 37 kilometers to go on sector nine we had Eliza was leading on that cobbled sector and she took out no she was it's tom's backseat podcasting <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so Eliza slid on that cobbled sector and took out Weebus and and Lotta Capecchi and subsequently the entire group basically that they were with yeah Um, I mean like from the front it looked like it was just a couple of them that crashed but then when you saw like an overhead or like a back shot Uh. it was like just 
it was like a video game. Mm. <laughs> Riders riding into each other. Lucinda Brand did like the most beautiful front flip over everybody and just like basically <laughs> rolled back onto her bike and kept riding, which was pretty amazing. And um, we had a whole group of riders that were able to stop and climb off their bikes and walk around the carnage that then were in front. And so this was like such an insane moment, but it also meant that at one point we had the Peloton, the reduced Peloton, with Voss and her teammates pass Lada Kopecky and her group because they were still recovering from the crash. And there was like, that was so confusing to watch because obviously they didn't have enough motos to follow every single group. And so you just had no idea who was in any position. Like for what for a really long time, I thought that Kapeki was right behind the group with Julie Leth. And I was like, oh, she's just right there. And then all of a sudden you found out that there was a whole Peloton in between <laughs> with, with Voss. I feel like if that crash hadn't happened, would Voss ever have gotten back? Probably not because things were starting to really ramp up and the time was tumbling. And I was like, okay, they've got it under control coming back what's going to happen like there's going to be some mm-hmm. massive attacks at some point let's go and then that yeah. happened and i was like oh for <laughs> sake <laughs> yeah. well yeah the winners out of that crash was the the early break and yeah. everyone else was just big losers out of that like it just really impacted the race massively the chaos that ensued after that i don't think i've seen anything like that in a bike race for a long time i can't remember watching a race on tv and feeling so unsure about who was where and like like yeah. someone just said yeah. that there wasn't yeah. enough motos so some riders you thought were in some group weren't i had elisa longo Borghini in one group for about 40 kilometers i thought she was there and that turned out she was in a different group <laughs> and it was just it was just mental and probably like like lot of it looked like she took a little while to get up like she wasn't super hurt but she she didn't jump straight back up like i think she was at the bottom of the pile and pretty sore. And then you, you could tell when she was riding back, I think she was with Balsamo. Yeah. And um, both of them just looked a bit like oh, a little bit over it. I think <laughs> could, that- you could see that they were just like, oh, okay, come on, let's yeah. go. Like <laughs> just like it, it would have definitely affected her legs too, I reckon, because like a, a big impact like that can make you feel real shit for a little while. So she would have had to mentally and physically ride herself back in to the race, let alone get back to those groups. There were some quotes from SD Works that came out overnight where Lotta was saying that she thought she broke her ankle in the crash immediately afterwards and she was really really sore obviously but she just kept going and going and it got better as she went and then she felt she said that she felt as strong as she felt before the crash by the time you know things settled down a bit later on um so yeah that that must have been a scary moment for her and it would explain why it looked like she was battling to begin with Mm. Brand was like amazing out of that like Lucinda Brand was like a ninja, like, or a cat, <laughs> just like roll. She, she hit the back of a, but she was maybe sixth wheel in that group when the crash happened. So she basically just hit a bunch of people and flew off of her bike, but she just like did an amazing little tumble. She was back on her bike so quick for like, it looked like she landed on her back on the cobbles and then she was up really quick. So that was yeah. yeah she's she's definitely got the skills to pay the bills and I used to hate following her in races because I would like I I thought I was quite a good corner and my skills are not too bad for a bike rider and I pr- pride myself on that and I could never hold her wheel through corners I'd always just be shitting my pants <laughs> she's so good so it was cool to see her just yeah like you said be like a cat and just be like back in it really quickly um, there's one person I do want to talk a little bit about, which is Romy Casper. Like, she's been around for a really long time. She actually was in the Bulls team way, way back, and she's kind of jumped through a few different teams since then. But, like, she got through that crash, but she was also riding super well before that. So I think she just was on a really good day, and she's a really underrated rider. And then to see her trying to decide what to do after that was interesting to, like, go harder try and like ride solo across the break or just to wait so uh, I think she made the right decision by not going full gas because that it probably just wouldn't have worked out that well um but yeah I think she was having a great day and um it was lucky that she didn't get involved in that crash but she was also on the front so it was like also you know it was uh, a good 
good move by her to be going into a lot of those sectors on the front or at least right near the front. Yeah, she she dropped off the radar for a little bit for a couple years. And I think there was a moment when she'd maybe stepped away from racing or something and then came back and was on Yumbo Visma, came back to Yumbo Visma. Um, but she's definitely an asset to that AG insurance, uh, Sudal quick step team with all the knowledge that she has. I mean, it's obviously a young team and they've got a couple really strong riders like Ashley and Lada Hintala, but the, the knowledge that she would have the experience that she would have to bring as like a team leader into races like this and other races is massive. And I was really excited to see her off front. Obviously like you would not know what to do at that point. Um, cause there was so much time in between her and the breakaway and also like so much carnage going on beyond behind that just been, a, been in, I don't know, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, it was nice to see like her name, you know, as solo rider in between two groups with like uh, edge of my seat. This was the best, this, no, I want, I want to talk about this at the end, but we'll get to it. We'll get to it anyway. Um, so what else, what else happened during the, well, so many things, <laughs> what else do we have well, to talk the, about? Well, the groups eventually all came sort of back together again. At what point was that kilometer? 15, 15 Ks to go. It was on the car for the lab, I believe. And then for me, like, again, I watched the, the last 10 or so kilometers this morning, but it felt like things were obviously getting really organized again. People were pulling turns the gap tumbled all the way down till I think we got to 20 seconds. We got to 10 seconds like, at yep. one point. I mean, 10 seconds. It was so I was close. counting yeah. at one point from the last rider in the front group to the first rider in the second group, it was six and a half, seven seconds. Yeah, I we definitely, so this is definitely, I got too excited. There's like too much to talk about. I like, I even have a list in front of me <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. It's just like complete chaos. <laughs> But yeah, so when that group, when that Peloton came back together, I mean, it was a massive group. I don't think anybody expected to see such a big group potentially in contention for the win in Paris-Roubaix. This is obviously a race for the men where it comes down to solo winners or small groups quite often. But for the women, it's, I mean, we've only had two years and we've had two solo winners. So yeah, so that group, the the chase was interesting because obviously they had multiple riders who were favorites in the race with teammates, but there wasn't, I feel that Trek shot themselves in the foot a little bit because they started to attack. And as soon as attacks start flying, started flying from that group behind, they'd brought it so close. And then like brand went and then Aliza went. And as soon as those riders got brought back, you were like, okay, the break has it. Cause as soon as those riders got brought back, they just sat up the the peloton behind just sat up there was no there was no one in front that was willing to do the work at that point and allison and marta Locke of sarah at wnt were just completely committed to making the breakaway survive shout out to them because they were really like allison and marta were really rallying like you could see them yelling at at the riders because we've said it before you just have to keep riding because even though it got down to 10 seconds less than 10 seconds they knew you just have to keep pushing because of also what we've seen happening in group two and for me even before lucinda and elisa did those attacks um now you can correct me i don't know which cobbled sector it was but that's when they got to the closest point where i really thought someone from group two would just go pop and try and get across and then go past the break i think it um, would have been but it didn't happen if it if it hadn't been for if they got so close and then they exited that cobble section and then it was like i was counting the seconds i'm like oh it's going out again and then you could see like it was bunching a bit they weren't strung out and then it went out to 20 seconds and then they hit that big wide open road with a bit of a drag 20 seconds to the front that's when Lucinda tried to pop across and then i was like no it's done now yeah it was the the second well cobble sector number two i believe the willems to hem it's like 1.4 kilometers long and two stars so it's it was the longer one before the really short one before they 
like yeah or almost at the velodrome but i think like the group two thing the group two thing is something that we've seen so much this year and i didn't expect to see it in this race because i thought more riders would be i thought more riders would be allison jackson (laughs) like more riders would be able to put everything on the line to win and and we didn't see it we saw again just the group two the group two phenomenon that we've had all year where they you're like I'm curious scratching your head like what are you doing <laughs> Gracie what were you what were you thinking and saying in the commentary at this point um SD works were the biggest losers by that point because they'd run out of riders it was just Kapeki there by that stage in that main chase group and so she was being attacked it was a mistake by trek to not just sacrifice elisa and just drive it marta bastianelli also got on the front and drove it she could have done that for longer she did uh, i was surprised that she did that at all i thought consoni was a bit like happy to have a teammate but also like 50 percent shitted off that it was bastianelli because she wouldn't ride for consoni but she did but it, it should have just been for longer there should have just been you know two or three of those riders, the Longa Borghini's, the Bastianelli's, and um, maybe someone else. I'm just having a mental blank of who that should have been. But, like, if they just went full gas for about 5K, it could have made that difference. But there was a tailwind. And that Mm. also was a factor because the speed was high in both groups and that gap was whenever you're in a tailwind situation, it wasn't that strong but it was enough that both groups had quite a high speed. So it was just with those attacks coming from track, like that. I agree with you, Lauren, it kind of was all over at that point then. It's just a bit strange. Yeah. I think yeah. that they, the groups behind managed to effectively shut down what was a five and a half minute, six minute gap over 50, 60 K, whatever, and then get so close to catching him. And then the group two syndrome kind of kicks in. It felt like there was more cohesion in the lead up to that, but then when it actually mattered at the very end, then it kind of fell apart. And I think that happens when it gets so close is everyone goes into Mm. that conservative mode. I need the watts for the sprint now. This is where I'm going to stop riding. Like Grace Brown was a good example. She did a ton of work earlier, but then you go into that mode of like, okay, how am I going to win now when when Mm. we are going to catch them? And then they didn't catch them. So there was quite a handful, quite a lot of riders in that chase group that was in that scenario and that were putting that extra energy in earlier. But when you just get to that, like you can see them up, up the road. Like I think that's, it's a real easy trap to fall into to just be like, okay, I'm going to save my legs now. And But everyone thinks that. <laughs> they also had yep. like a handful of riders in that, in that group that were remnants of the early break that would have been mm. just absolutely crushed at that point. Um, so I think like they, there was a healthy dose of riders that didn't have an, didn't have a teammate. So they weren't going to work because other riders did have a teammate and riders who just had nothing left and disrupted the chase, not on purpose, but just accidentally by being in the mix. And the group was too big for there to be like for teammates who had teammates to find each other and be like, okay, we need to organize. There just wasn't enough time at that point. So I think it was multiple different factors. But then, crucially, out front, we had Allison Jackson doing potentially way too much work <laughs> to keep the break alive. <laughs> My God. Like, <laughs> I, I, I'm so excited we finally got to this. So she was the most gutsy rider on the day, the most aggressive rider on the day. She did so much work in that break. It's kind of a bummer that we didn't get to see the breakaway Um how they were working together when there was DSM. We had Danik, Dan, Danik, Danik, uh, Hengeveld up the road, and we didn't get to see what the break was doing at that point because the moto was on was on her and then was on the peloton behind and then was on Voss. So we had like three motos scattered throughout the race, but the, the break kind of got forgotten. So we didn't get to see who did the most work in the middle of the race, kind of in that breakaway. But once she was brought back and the break was out front and there was still chaos going on behind, but we did have a moto on that front break. I mean, Allison was attacking multiple times. Marta Locke was attacking, but Allison was also trying to get off the, off the front solo. And 
then when we got closer to the pellet to the velodrome she was doing by far the most work like her and marta were doing so much work and i was watching it and i was thinking she's doing too much like she's she's doing too much she's not gonna have it in the end i i wanted her to win but i was like i don't think she's going to i think she's doing too much i think it's femke and then obviously we got into the velodrome and allison was Correct me if I'm wrong, Gracie, because I think you would know more than me, but Allison was perfectly positioned when they came into that velodrome. Like, she was 100% in charge. She wasn't on the front, so she wasn't using energy, but she was, like, in perfect position with Femke, and it just was bad luck or SC Works. um, Maybe they broke a mirror or something. (laughs) Femke crashed, (laughs) And, and Allison was like perfectly positioned to win that sprint look it's always dangerous to try and come up on the inside in a track what on a track and so she was putting herself in a really dangerous position there and when you've got 140 something kilometers in your legs out in the break all day you know a slight little touch of wheels is yeah it looks like that's sort of what happened right but i had no idea when they came into into the velodrome i was like who's gonna win this like they're all exhausted at this point, so it's actually anyone's race. Um, and Marta Luck, I think she let it out the whole the whole lap and a half. Yeah, Marta Luck, yeah, let it out right from the corner into the velodrome. So I, I felt for her. She was, I think she was, you know, the second strongest rider or the strongest maybe in that group. And she did so much work. She did just as much work or maybe even more than Alison at, at points. So I wish that she could have been on the podium, but like kudos to her that she sacrificed herself. She was, you know, could be the MVP of the race um, if she didn't get on the podium. So, but Abby, you're right. Like Alison kept, she, she was doing a lot of work and maybe too much, but she kept putting herself back into that top three, top four positions just so she could choose where what wheel she wanted to be on as they got went into the velodrome she came in on that corner into the track second wheel she and she stayed there and I think other riders in that position either would have floated back to third or fourth or got boxed in or they might have tried to attack early so she number one she kept herself in second wheel that whole time and number two she didn't go early she didn't try to attack or she didn't start her sprint too early either she had to go on the long side though on that final corner which was really hard to watch because i didn't know whether Boras was gonna take the the whole race or not i was i was starting to panic a little bit there and she looked really strong too so that's another you know hats off to that french rider she she was super strong um, but yeah, Alison, she timed it well. I think she thought about it, you know, she, it, that is the most difficult point in the race when you're tired, there's all that pressure there and you can win the race or you can lose the race. And she just went when she wanted to go and she was strong. She stayed in the saddle for about five seconds and then she had enough to get out of the saddle, which I was also super impressed with, like, I think it just all came together that day. She rode really bravely and boldly. She she rode the race that she thought that she could win from that situation. And then she executed it all the way through the race, but especially at the end, like remarkable. Yep. It was. And the fact that she danced at the very end, I don't know if you saw that on TV. <laughs> no, yeah, that was the best. <laughs> but I was like, this is just the greatest winner. <laughs> Yeah, I want to throw, actually, really quick, before we continue, I want to throw to her post-race interview because she said some really awesome things in this interview about dreams and also about if you want to win the race, you need to ride hard, and she she did that. So let's hear from Allison. From Canada, you won Paris-Roubaix Femme with Wift. I sure did. <laughs> what is going on in your head? It's, uh, yeah, I mean, we when we did the pre-ride and we rode around this velodrome and I just dream of winning, uh, but a lot of times those dreams just stay dreams and uh, it's unreal to make it happen in real life. So I have few words. How did you manage your day tactically? I wanted to be a part of the action. I wanted to be ahead of the race. I didn't want to wait. Um, our team for the for this spring has just been waiting, um, and it hasn't been working. Um, and because we had a bit of rain 
uh, earlier in the week. It was going to be slick out there. And in a race like this, you just need to avoid bad luck in order to get a good luck to get a win. And uh, so when the move went, um, I, I was just waiting and available and then, and then wanted to ride it. And in the final there, the group was coming back to us, and there's only four of us, maybe in that group of seven, that actually wanted to ride. But either either you don't ride and you lose the race, or or you ride hard and you maybe you have a chance. Um, and I just trusted in myself and in my passion and heart for just wanting to get in the bike race, and it turned out with a win. When you cross the finish line, what did you think about? Oh man, I saw it coming. And it had clear space, and I just, oh, it's, yeah, a dream come true. It just I, to cross the finish line first of any bike race is a special type of fun, uh, and this this one tops that. In a few minutes, you're gonna go on the podium. Are you ready to leave the cobble? I am so ready. I'm gonna whatever strength I've got left. This is a hard bike race, but I think I've still got so much energy. I'm gonna lift that thing high. Congratulations. Thank you. For this race, this is. I'm so excited that the women have Perry Roubaix because how often is it that the most aggressive rider in the race is the one who can win? And this is just a race where because there's so much uncertainty, because there's cobble sectors to break apart the chase, because there's also just, you have to have luck on your side. This is a race that I think suits a rider like Allison, who's super aggressive and is really not afraid to lose. And that is exactly what happened on Saturday. And the whole podium, like just watching the podium, I think people were Googling who, who's Marta Truant. Who's Katia Ragusa? I think people do know who Katia is, but just like, wow, who are these riders? Or just the whole comp composition of that group that came into the Peloton, uh, sorry, into the Velodrome um, was really cool because you just don't see that that often. I mean, in stage races, it's more likely that, you know, on day seven or so of a, of a long tour, you get these groups that get to to have a little bit of freedom and and go for the win. But not in a one-day iconic race. Like I think as bed. frustrating as it was to watch the chase group get as close as it did and not actually make, make the catch, the way that it finished with the break winning was just a really exciting way for it to finish. You know, after the first two editions having a solo winner, which were fine, but not nearly as exciting as what we saw yesterday. There was so much back mm. and forth and, you know, times during this race where it seemed certain the break would survive and then certain they'd get caught and then back the other way and you never really knew what was going to happen. It was a fantastic finish. And like you said, Lauren, to see uh, relatively unknown riders on the podium in the top six, you know, all, all the top six from the breakaway. Yeah, what a fantastic result. Certainly not from a rider's point of view, except for Jackson, but from a viewer's point of view, it, it was the perfect race. We had the early breakaway. We had the mid-race drama with all of the favourites and it was touch and go right at the end. And we had someone that we all like win the race, which no disrespect to the other riders in the peloton, but Alison Jackson is a personality, but she's also like a fun personality. She's a fun winner and she has been around for a while people know who she is so in some ways she didn't I don't want to make this sound bad but she didn't make the sport look bad if we had a complete unknown win the race it would have been super well deserved like you can't accidentally win Roubaix but I like that we had a rider of Alison Jackson's profile win it from that situation yeah I mean I think this was my favorite bike race that I've ever seen in my life. Like there were, there was stress, there was excitement, there were tears. There was just like pulling my hair out because I didn't know what was going on. Like one of the listener questions had to do with the, um, the coverage and the lack of motos. But I think like for, mm -hmm. for a race like this, there's no way that you can predict how many groups are going to be on the road. Like this is the, not seeing certain groups on the road is something we see in men's racing too. So it's not like it was unique to this race specifically, but 
perhaps after two years of a solo winner, <laughs> the ASO was like, ah, I think we're good with three motos. <laughs> and now they know for next time. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah. I, I do mean, agree with that. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's always it'd be good to see the start yeah it'd be great to see the start <laughs> yeah we were so close so close to seeing the entire first cobbled sector i mean the live coverage started like on the first cobbled sector i was like no yeah. could it not have been 10 minutes earlier <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about katia ragusa and martha troyan lauren am i saying mm -hmm. that right you're but you're belgian kind of oh i don't know how to pronounce that name <laughs> to be honest look <laughs> So Katia Ragusa, she's a young rider, 25, but she's been around for a while. Like she had an awesome year in 2022 when she was on Astana and then she was on the AR Monix team after that. And she signed for Liv last year, but she's had a couple good results. Like she got third on a stage at Guelta Burgos in 2019. Uh, she finished fourth at, the, at a stage of the Giro d'Italia in 2020, second the national championships in Italy in 2020. So she's had a couple good results in the past. Um, but what do you guys think this will, th this will do for her career? Obviously it's like the breakaway stayed. So you kind of have to factor in a little bit of the chaos that was the day, but she's, she's still a relatively young rider, 25. So I think that this is like I said in the preview that I didn't expect anything from Liv. They've had a couple really hard years after losing Capecchi. And I think that a result like this is going to be huge for that team. For sure. Um, she looked really disappointed. I don't know if anyone was paying attention to her on the podium, but they were doing she she was on the verge of tears the whole time. So I think she really believed as well that she she could have won on that day and I was talking to to my partner about it and those riders who got into that break at the start of the day i don't think any of them would have imagined this is how it sort of panned out in the end i mean you you start to believe it towards the end but for the riders as well who dropped out of that front group they must be waking up today going Shit. Yeah, I, w <laughs> I was interested that Lisa Klein, I couldn't tell if Lisa Klein got dropped or was told to drop back to help Brandon Longo Borghini because as soon as she hit the back of that, uh, the front she of that group, they just went straight past her. Like she couldn't, she wasn't yeah. going their speed at all. And it was on a cobbled sector. So it's not like they could slow down for her to, like Lucinda was on the front and she couldn't like slow down so that Klein could join the group. There was like, not a good moment for Lisa to drop back into that group. No, I don't think, I don't know. She looked super disappointed when uh, she rolled in um, to the pit area. And so I'm guessing, yeah, she's a great rider, but um, towards the end there, when those attacks were coming from, from that front group, that's, that's how it, you know, narrowed down to that smaller group in the end. So, so as for, Martha, obviously, she's on Phoenix to Kunik, which is a relatively new team to the Peloton. Um, and she signed for that team actually through 2025. She's only 23. Um, I loved her post-race interview where she was like, yeah, Flanders would be better. <laughs> I would rather have a result in Flanders. <laughs> she was like, I'm Belgian. I would rather have a good result in Flanders. <laughs> so that was pretty funny. Uh, it was a, love the honesty. Yeah, very honest interview um, from a young Typical writer. Belgian. Yeah. <laughs> um, She's actually gone way under my radar. I had a good little look at her um, stats and it was like mm. she's actually been doing quite well. But last year she had a string of quite solid results and top 10s and top 20s. So I think that's just a lesson for me to pay a bit more attention, not to the riders getting top 10s, but consistent top results. So it's so easy just to ignore some names that you don't know so well because you're like, oh, well, it's a bunch print. Like it's easy. Sometimes it's easy to roll in to a top 20 or top, top 10 or top 20 finish. Not saying it's easy, but you know what I mean? Like it's just, I think, yeah, just looking through her results and seeing how consistent they were last year was like, okay, well, I need to have a look at who else is being that consistent too and just not write people off so easily because we're always just talking about the big names or the big teams. Yes, that's that's really true actually, also for the podcast. And I mean, for, for those writers to get to the finish, 
it wasn't by luck, was it, in the end? Because like we were just saying, a writer like Lisa Klein wasn't there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and for for her, she also, she races cross. Like, obviously, she's on Phoenix to Kunick, so a lot of that team uh, does both disciplines, and she's one of them, and she's she's had a couple solid results in cross. She's mostly like a mid-pack finisher, but she's only 23, so she's she's super young. Like, I, I'm super excited to see how she does in other races coming up because this was, I mean, her composure at the finish uh, leads me to believe that she has a lot of belief in herself for what she can accomplish and that this was not, this wasn't like the biggest moment of her career. I think she's, she sees a lot more coming for herself. Um, And on the riders in that group, um, for me, the most surprising was actually the French rider Marion Boras because like I said, off the podcast, I checked out her stats and um, I thought she was super strong. Like Gracie was saying, she actually let out the sprint in the end and Alison Jackson then came around and we got the podium we had. But she's only raced twice this year. She she raced Skelderpries, um, which was just on the 5th, I think, of April, and this race. And then all her top results are just the French national championships. Yeah, it looks like her only season with a UCI-registered team is this year. And she's only done, yeah, Skelter Price and Paris-Roubaix. So that's a fantastic effort. And like you said that's before, huge. Gracie, it, it looked for a moment there like she was going to win the thing as well. <laughs> Which would have been... Cool. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I the like, Olympics oh all over Alison. again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I still think that's the bigger loss for women cycling, but uh, it could have it could have been a, another one of those moments. <laughs> All right, so we talked a bunch about Perry Roubaix. I think we answered most listener questions. Natalia asked about um, if SD Works were too relaxed. I vote yes. You guys want to vote yes or no? <laughs> Deliberation too. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, the other question she had was, it seemed like Allison overruled the radio when she was told to stop wasting energy. Why were they not letting her do her thing? So that was um, actually recorded that bit. So I can throw that in right now. You have to ride intelligently now. You have to ride intelligently. No point wasting energy when you can win this race. Don't really stop using your brain. So yeah, on the radio, Allison was told to relax, and that was kind of in the last hundred. Uh, that that was in the last one k um, when she had been doing a bunch of work on the front. And I think at that point, a rider like Allison is not about to not waste energy if she sees a win coming her way. I think she did. Like. I don't know. Is it normal for riders at that point to just kind of go with gut instinct and not listen to the radio? Yes, is my yeah. answer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, and then the early break had 18 riders and over five minutes. Why was there little impetus to catch? I think like the one thing that I didn't say earlier about that was that there was no clear favorites in that group of 18. So there weren't like any clear threats and there was top teams with riders in there using those riders to be like stepping stones, not the rider to win the race, such as um, Klein and Marcus. You know, I think um, Trek and SD Works were like, cool, we'll just have another number at the end and we can trust them to ride this group because they could probably win from this group anyway, but we're not going to back that option. But the fact that they then had to at the end, was a, that was the mistake. And, um, yeah, I think that... Most of the riders in that 18 were just underrated by the peloton. It was a fun game to try to decide who was going to win from that group of 18 when they were when they were out front. Because we talked about it like in the group chat, obviously. And there was, you know, I, I was like, oh, Suzanne Anderson. Uh, she finished second at Drentha, not remembering that she crashed at Nakra Corsa and uh, broke her collarbone. So I was like, oh, man, this could be the first World Tour win for Uno X, which would have been huge. And obviously, Julie Leth had an incredible had ride. ride. Yeah, for 11th. Yeah, and she, really good. She, got, she was well positioned when that crash, Elisa Longaborghini crash happened, that she was able to just get off her bike and walk around the side, and she didn't go down. 
But I mean, this was such a huge result for her, I feel like, and for that team. All right, so this is a big mm. question. So this will be our final big conversation of the episode, I think. Ed asked, doesn't the format of Paris-Roubaix highlight the format of Flanders Classics races is suboptimal for cycling fans? Saturday f- had a full 24 hours of media coverage and buzz while races like Flanders suffer from being mixed in with men's races. This is a conversation we've already had a little bit of this this season, but I feel like this solidified my position, my stance on this topic, which is that I want the women to have their own race. Now, the problem with that is that races like Flanders Classics, on Saturday there's a sportif, which is massive for, obviously, fans. There was a sportif before the women's race. This is my point. <laughs> and you know what was great? The crowd, the amount of people that stayed on from that sportive to to watch the women come, come in, like the sound in the velodrome was like it gave me goosebumps, really. As soon as they entered, it was it was really cool. So that's not an excuse. But anyway. Yeah, no, <laughs> I feel like this is because it's the same. The same conversation can be had for a lot of the big men's races where there's a sportif the day before. And so. But I feel like for me, the if you look at like, say, for example, you look at Escape Collective, there was six, seven stories on the women's race, and it's the only thing on the homepage. And that is something that I want to see for every women's race. And if the men's and women's races are on the same day, the women's race will always get eclipsed by the men's race. Even if the men's race finishes before the women's race, like then all the journalists are rushing to get in stories about the men's race and they miss the women's finish. So that doesn't, and I understand the argument about having people on the course that are there and like the men's race has gone through. So they stick around to watch the women, but we saw an article come out this week that after the men went through for Flanders, there was like a mass exodus of people from the side of the road before the women came through. So I just don't think that that is a good excuse to have them on the same day and have the women finish after the men. I feel like the women's cycling is growing so much at this point that they deserve their own day. It's just another way to kind of cut costs and, and make it seem like the women are important while also just tacking them onto the men's side of the sport. Whereas, like, if they have their own day, like, with Paris-Roubaix, Femme of Egg-Zwift, and also with the Tour de France Femme of Egg-Zwift, then they get all of the attention, all of the coverage. Everything is centered around them. And I think that we are at a point in the sport where they 100% deserve that with most of the major races. Obviously, it's not possible for some races, but races like Omlupahed Newsblad, which is, like, the opening race of the classic, so it's a pretty big deal. Flanders, Paris-Roubaix, there are races on the calendar that 100% deserve to be their own day and be completely separate from the men's edition. What do you guys think? 100% agree. <laughs> oh, great. This is a great debate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, I'm fully on board with that too. I think having spectators on ground is cool, but it's not what is going to boost the economy of the sport. You want viewers on streaming services and tv and you need to have that maximum advertisement exposure both with paid advertisements and sponsor exposure within the the context of racing the the riders and the media stuff that was what i noticed today when i opened like obviously i'm biased to escape but like it was all about the women's race there was six articles back to back that i could read all from different six different journalists with six different angles and it was really cool to just be like not having to sift through all this men's stuff to get one article about the women's race yeah for all for all of the reasons that you guys have just said it's an, a no-brainer to me the women should have their own events i the thing that i'm drawn to is wondering why we don't already like this one does obviously Perry bay does but is it a case of just laziness or just that's the way it's been so it hasn't happened yet or are there logistical issues in the way that make it tricky is it just a case of just needing to get it done what are the things that that are getting in the way that's what i'm drawn to and uh hopefully we see if there are issues hopefully we see those get you know overcome in the, the next few years we should get someone on from the flanders class classics to 
to talk about it. I always feel bad picking on yeah. Flanders classics because they they do no. they've done a good job, but also there are areas where they can improve. But yeah, just to understand, like you know, in terms of their their planning of the event, what are they thinking? Like with with Flanders, um, and I think at News Blub was the same. Why why now are the women finishing after the men? Um, because before I think we used to finish before, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, look, of course you didn't have that, that they, excess. Yeah, I think they were trying to do the right thing. Like it's not like they were just being like, "This is the easiest thing for us to do, so we're going to do it like this." I think that they their intentions were good with the way that they've tried to structure it, particularly you know with the women finishing afterwards. But and, and I agree with Matt too. Like there's so much else. You know, it's a it's probably a bigger cost. And it's more logistics to have it on a separate day. So that's it. That's a big factor. Arguably cost is the biggest factor. Cost to have more people out there volunteering or paid roles. And it's a huge cost to have proper coverage as well. So like, yeah, it's a really tough one. <laughs> it's ideally, idealistically great to have it on separate days, but in the real world, I'm sure that there's plenty of good reasons why that it is done the way it's currently done. So let's hope that it can be better in the future. And I think yesterday proved the the worthiness of that in happening in the future. And I think, um, you know, yesterday happened the way it did in terms of like being able to have this, this separate event and the Tour de France is because a big sponsor like Zwift came on board to be able to do that. Um, you know, and today you'll see the all the sponsorship is different for today's race. So I guess that that's part of the the key to the puzzle would be that, say, at a race like Flanders, if there was another sponsor like Zwift that wanted to come on board and say, we want to co-sponsor this, there'd be more money than to put into the event. Yeah, I think uh, I think money is maybe the main and like logistics and the amount of people closing the roads is obviously not easy and having the roads closed for two days in a row would be would be harder for the event to manage um but and i wonder if that's a little bit easier with paru bay because of you know using quieter you know farm roads that aren't used as much as you know roads in flanders would be for example or maybe not i don't know like Milan San Remo, for example, for them, it would not be easy to close the roads two days in a row because they use like actual roads that cars use as well. <laughs> like the more attention that the women's side of the sport gets, and obviously the more viewer numbers for the women's side of the sport, the more money comes in. And it's kind of like a domino effect, right? So things like Paris Roubaix being such a successful race are only going to kind of encourage races in the future to follow this model so i think it's kind of like a we'll see how it happens down the road and yeah hopefully in the future the women have their own day for every for every race it would be amazing all right so the only other news that happened for the week that we don't really have to get into because i think that there will be more that comes of this that we will be able to discuss in later episodes is that Audrey Cordon Rigaud has left ZAF and signed with Human Powered Health. Um, so it was awesome to see her on the start line, obviously. I think she'll be a huge asset to that team, which is trying to keep their world tour status um, with the new relegation system that we actually haven't even talked about, but I'm sure we will at some point. And yeah, interesting. Um, there was a really touching video on the escape Twitter and Instagram of her hugging her former teammates and um, them all being in tears. I think it's obviously a really hard situation for Audrey and for that team. And I, um, I hope that more information comes out in the future because I really would like to know what on earth is going on with that team and if all the riders can land on their feet. They've had some yeah, it's a- shocker of a year. <laughs> already very shitty situation but the one good thing was that the zaf riders are still allowed to show up to these big races currently so at least the riders are not being punished completely by this situation so that's just my one tidbit for <laughs> this thought yeah so we'll get to that when the web when there's more news but that's it that's our Peru Bay wrap-up episode hopefully you enjoyed it Thanks, you guys, for joining me, and we'll be back next week to talk about Amstel Gold. Live.
Live. We'll be back live. Live. Lauren and Matt and I and Gracie, I'm assuming you'll be asleep. So that's why I didn't (laughs) ask you, (laughs) um, are going to be here live with Brody Chapman to talk about so gold. So make sure to tune into that on the escape discord. We're, We're really excited. The last one was super fun. So if you're an escape member, then you have access on the Discord. And you really have to tune into these races because we only have two weeks left of, of the one dayers, really. Oh, and then we're in the, the big, stage the big. race season. Yes. Man, has this spring gone by like really fast? I feel like it's been a blink. Spring always goes fast. It's I'm true. always like, oh, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe we have to wait a whole nother year for Perry Bay Femme. Why can't though. they just keep doing classics the whole year? That'd be great. <laughs> Imagine how fucked you'd be. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, if there were more races like yesterday, I wouldn't have, I would be like completely unraveled. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone. And uh, see you next Thanks. week.